Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, Chapter 2 Well, as we know from the previous chapter, the Jaredite story is now underway. Even though the story began with Ether in the previous chapter, we quickly discovered in verse 6 of the previous chapter that we would be traveling even farther back in time from Ether. And so, as we know, his genealogy was given. So as readers, we were transported even further back in time, at least uh, 29 generations back from Ether, and probably more, because uh, right at the beginning of that genealogy, it says that Ether was a descendant of Coriantor, not the son of So again, that genealogy took us all the way back to the Tower of Babel incident, and we were introduced to Jared and his brother. Well, this created a very interesting tie-in into the Genesis account of the Tower of Babel. Just as Lehi's story, when we read the very beginning of his exile, ties into the Babylonian captivity and the story of Zedekiah. This Tower of Babel incident in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, reads as follows, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, And they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And again, that's Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. We can see at the very end of that passage what the two consequences were for the building of this tower, that the people's language was confounded and that they were scattered. Well, as we might recall, these are the two consequences that the brother of Jared prayed over at the end of the previous chapter. And he did this at Jared's behest. The consequence of these prayers, and it was three prayers actually, was that the Lord said that he would not confound the language of Jared and his brother and his families. And then the second, after the second prayer, the Lord said he would not confound the language of their friends. Then, as we can recall, the second consequence of this Tower of Babel incident is addressed by the brother of Jared in prayer. And that has to do with the scattering of the people. Jared introduced us to the notion 
that if he and his people were to be scattered, perhaps they could be led, as he said in verse 38, to a land which is choice above all the earth. So that's a desire that Jared had. Whether there was some scriptural precedent for this desire, we don't know. But everything that we're about to read in the book of Ether spins out of this desire. And the brother of Jared's request of the Lord, as we read in verse 39, according to that which had been spoken by the mouth of Jared. Well, as we know from the previous chapter, the Lord did tell the brother of Jared that he would grant this desire to him and his people. And he told them to gather in a valley which was northward. It's at the beginning of this chapter then, in Ether chapter 2, where this story commences. We find that this valley is named. It's named Nimrod after the mighty hunter. That's another Genesis tie-in, actually, because Nimrod is also named in the book of Genesis. So now as chapter 2 begins of the book of Ether, this ancient narrative, this ancient exile narrative is well underway, and we find the Jaredites in the valley of Nimrod, and they're ready to begin their journey. As with all exile narratives, this journey will end in the attainment of a promised land. Moroni, as editor, will explain that the promised land in this instance is a place where whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, as verse 12 will tell us. This ancient exile narrative then, with its attainment of the promised land, as with all other exile stories in the Book of Mormon and in Scripture more broadly, is, of course, a type of our own exile narrative. We, too, estranged from God as wanderers in the strange land of mortality, as Alma once put it. We, too, long for our promised land. It, too, is a land that we attain unto by entering into covenants with God. It's a land that can only be arrived at after an arduous journey. But at our journey's end, at the time when we are able to enter into the rest of the Lord, we will discover not only that the journey was thoroughly worth it, because now it's possible for us in this place to be given all that the Father hath, but we will know then, just as we should know now, that the only way to this promised land is through the way, the Son of God, who described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He is our mediator in this journey. He is our high priest of good things to come, as Elder Holland has described him. And just as the brother of Jared shows us in this chapter, in his appeals to the Lord for help with how to breathe, how to steer, and how to find light, we can approach the Father in prayer, in the name of his Son, our mediator, and appeal to him for help with the proximate problems of our day. Well, Ether chapter 2 is composed of 25 verses. It begins in the valley of Nimrod, uh, the valley that in the previous chapter was described as a valley to the north, and then it ends with the brother of Jared's exchange with the Lord. And that same exchange will carry us into the next chapter. The first section, then, of Ether chapter 2 can be found in verses 1 through 3. This is where we see Jared and his people gathering in the valley of Nimrod. They're fulfilling the Lord's wishes in this respect. He told them that he would meet them there. This valley, Nimrod, is named after this mighty hunter, who obviously was known for his ability to acquire food. And that's the task of these people. Uh, We read some very interesting ways in which they acquire food and carry food with them in this section. So we'll come back to that. In verses 4 through 8, and in keeping with the Lord's promise that he would meet his people there in the valley of Nimrod, he speaks with the brother of Jared. At this point, he tells them that he's going to lead them from Nimrod, and he does so. 
He leads them from this valley into the wilderness and then later onto the promised land. It's a little bit hard to tell whether this section is uh, forecasting or summarizing the entire journey to the promised land or if it is its own smaller journey in and of itself that involved its own watercraft. Well, it seems to be the latter as we move through the chapter. This seems to be its own separate trip. Uh, So we'll talk about that too as we come to it. In any event, it's here where the notion of a promised land is introduced. Well, actually, of course, it was introduced in the previous chapter by Jared. Uh, But it's expanded upon here, and particularly in verses 9 through 12. This is where Moroni editorializes, so to speak. He speaks about the promised land and the conditions that surround it. No one is more expert on this subject, perhaps, than Moroni, who is the lone survivor of a destroyed Nephite civilization. So he'll speak on this subject with great power and authority, and that'll take us through verse 12. And in so doing, we can also notice that he is very deliberately turning to the Gentiles of the future and talking to them about the promised land in which they dwell. We can very clearly see in verse 13 that Moroni is leaving that piece of commentary and coming back into the uh, storytelling narrative because he says at the beginning of verse 13, and now I proceed with my record. So in this verse, we'll find that the Jaredites arrive at Moriankamer. In other words, they arrive by the sea, and uh, they, they name this place Moriankamer. And of course, there's a tie-in between that name and the name that Joseph Smith later revealed was the name of the brother of Jared. So we'll discuss that. The important point to gain here is to see that the Jaredites uh, dwelt there for four years. So the story begins with them in the valley Nimrod, Then they find themselves in this land called Moriankamer. So this already apparently brings the Jaredites to the end of their first voyage, which involved a sea voyage, uh, if I'm reading this correctly. And here they are uh, by the sea. Uh, They might think at this point that this is their promised land, but it is not. It's a staging area for the larger journey that is at hand when they'll cross the sea. So they dwell here in Moriankamer to prepare for four years. We can kind of see a parallel in Lehi's story because uh, led by the Liahona, Lehi wandered in the wilderness for eight years before he came to the land by the sea where Nephi then built a ship. So something similar is happening here with the Jaredites in the land of Moriankamer. So Moriankamer will be the place setting then for everything that takes place in the remainder of this chapter and also everything that we read of in Ether chapter 3. Uh, and Ether chapter 4, and uh, Moroni's editorial comments in Ether chapter 5. So Moriankamer is a very special place. It's an important place in the narrative. We'll, we'll see in the next chapter, in fact, that it has something tantamount to a temple, uh, because the brother of Jared will go forth unto the mount, as uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 will tell us. So all of these holy things that we are about to read of, and these exchanges between the brother of Jared and Jehovah, are taking place in the land of Moriankamer, and more specifically, in a holy place within the land of Moriankamer. So verse 14 will bring us to the end of this four-year period in which the the Jaredites have dwelt in the land of Moriankamer, and we'll find that the Lord is speaking to the brother of Jared again. Uh, A new exchange is here for us to read. This one is really curious, and it's also really instructive as we consider the Lord's desire for us to commune with him in prayer. It's in verses 14 and 15, then, that the Lord speaks to the brother of Jared and chastises him for, quote, remembering not to call upon the name of the Lord. There's, of course, some nuance here. Uh, 
The brother of Jared was no spiritual miscreant. We can rest assured of that because of what is is soon to unfold in the narrative. However, uh, we can still take this story at face value. There will be some beautiful commentary that we can read on that. And of course, we can think about the importance of calling upon the Lord regularly. So coming into verses 16 and 17, the Lord will direct the Jaredites at this point to build barges like the previous one. So this is when it becomes clear that the previous mention of a sea voyage was not simply a forecasting of the voyage which is to come that begins in Ether chapter 6, but it was a separate preliminary voyage that took the people from the valley of Nimrod to this place by the sea, the land of Moriankamer. So the Jaredites are now faced with the very daunting task of crossing the sea. This is the thing that lies between them as they are in this staging area of Moriankamer and the promised land. So their method of transport will be barges. And the Lord will say in verse 16, to work and build after the manner of barges which ye have hitherto built. So again, this is the second instance of having built barges. The brother of Jared then knows from experience, as do his people, that there are three main problems with these barges, and he will bring these problems to the Lord. Again, these are problems that the people would have known experientially. They're expressed in verses 18 and 19. The brother of Jared will say to the Lord in verse 19, In them there is no light. And then he will say, And whither shall we steer? And then finally he will say to the Lord, and we can only imagine his trepidation having just been chastised for not calling upon the Lord, uh, bringing something that seems almost like a complaint to him when we consider that they had already traveled in barges that must have lacked these qualities. He says to the Lord, For in them we cannot breathe, save it is the air which is in them, therefore we shall perish. Well, in the remaining verses of this chapter then, the Lord will address these concerns. He'll do it by directly answering the way in which the brother of Jared and his people will breathe. He answers this question in verses 20 and 21. Then he will also directly answer the way in which they'll steer the barges in verse 24, explaining that the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. And so he will use these elements to direct them along not only the surface of the water, but interestingly underneath the surface of the water as well. But as to the brother of Jared's third concern, the way in which they'll have light in these barges, the Lord does not provide a direct answer. Instead, the Lord asks the brother of Jared what he would propose. He says in verse 25, the final verse in this chapter, What will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? So, of course, this is a very interesting pattern, and we'll read a lot of commentary about why the Lord addresses the brother of Jared's concern in this way and the way in which it relates to our appeals to him uh, as we try to solve the problems that we encounter, of course, in our exile journey. And it's a critical question, of course, of how do we find light to guide us? We'll read with great interest uh, of the way in which this unfolds then as we move into Ether chapter 3, and we'll learn much about faith and about prayer from the solution that the brother of Jared brings to the Lord, and uh, it will be rich with symbolic meaning as well. Well, with that flyover summary and structural view established, let's go back now to verse 1 of Ether chapter 2 and begin a reading. Remembering, of course, that at the end of the previous chapter, the Lord told Jared through his brother that he should gather his people in a valley. He said in verse 42, And when thou hast done this, thou shalt go at the head of them down into the valley which is northward, and there will I meet thee. 
So that's the context for the opening verse of chapter 2. Verse 1, And it came to pass that Jared and his brother and their families, and also the friends of Jared and his brother and their families, so remember that it was their families and their friends of Jared and his brother, who were not confounded, went down into the valley which was northward. So again, this is in keeping with the Lord's instructions that we just read in verse 42 of the previous chapter. And the name of the valley was Nimrod, being called after the mighty hunter, with their flocks which they had gathered together, male and female of every kind. So as we go back and think about this Tower of Babel incident, we can imagine that this would have been a time of great chaos. The language of the people was confounded to such a degree that they couldn't communicate with each other. And then there was this great scattering that takes place after the Tower of Babel. So a time of great chaos, yet there's something very orderly happening here with Jared and his brother, their families and their friends. Something very different is coming out of this for these specific people. I think this can tell us that in times of ostensible chaos in the world around us, that for the Lord's people, something very different can be happening in the face of this chaos. Uh, There can be great order. So that's what's happening here. The Jaredites are keeping their language. They're not confounded. And in the midst of the scattering that's happening around them, they are focused on gathering. Now, we'll read about the manner of the gathering in the Valley of Nimrod and the way in which they sustained themselves. We read or read at the end here of verse 1 that they sustained themselves with their flocks uh, and that they gathered uh, flocks male and female of every kind. We'll read of other means of sustenance here in in just a moment in verses 2 and 3. First, here's some commentary on this valley that they've arrived at. Ogden and Skinner say the Jaredites left what we call Mesopotamia, today's Iraq, for a promised land approximately two centuries before Abraham did the same. So they're divining this because, of course, the tie-in with the Tower of Babel incident, and all available evidence suggests that the Tower of Babel was in today's Iraq. So they did this. They left for a promised land approximately two centuries before Abraham did the same. So this exile pattern, again, is just throughout Scripture. The Lord also guided Moses and the Israelites, the Nephites, and the Latter-day Saints to promised lands. Nimrod was a renowned character who had established Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Nineveh in ancient Mesopotamia, according to tradition. Very interesting information on Nimrod there from Ogden and Skinner. Hugh Nibley has written, The name Nimrod evoked strong feelings among the ancients and was usually associated with rebellion. It may have carried more meaning than simply a name title for a valley, Nimrod, who founded the kingdom of Babel, had established false priesthood and false kingship in the earth in imitation of God's rule and made all men to sin. So, uh, while Ogden and Skinner are saying that Nimrod was associated widely in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, according to tradition, uh, was associated widely with the establishment of, of great cities and civilizations, uh, his name, according to Nibley, was a pejorative. Nibley is saying that Nimrod was a name that was associated with rebellion. Perhaps he was the leader of the movement that brought the wrath of God down upon the people, as they, uh, no doubt, in a manifestation of the great and abominable church that des- that's described by Nephi in vision, uh, no doubt in a manifestation of that, uh, engaged in counterfeit priesthood rituals and purporting to be able to save men through them. Thomas R. Valletta provides us with a different view of this time when the Jaredites arrived in Nimrod. 
He says the name of this valley may have been a stark reminder to the Jaredites that they, like all of God's children entering mortality, were strangers and sojourners in a dark and dreary world. Their trek through this valley of Nimrod might well have been a time of testing for them. If so, it can stand as a pattern of a similar temptation and trial the Savior experienced after being in the wilderness following his baptism. The record does not give us much detail concerning this part of their journey, except that it was a time of hard work, gathering, and preparation. So that's from Valetta's piece called Jared and His Brother that can be found in Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon Commentary. We read from that a little bit in the previous chapter, and that's a nice segue then into what's coming here in verses 2 and 3 as we consider the hard work and preparation that the people engaged in as they were in the Valley of Nimrod. So verse 2, and they did also lay snares. It says also, because we just read of the way in which they uh, gathered their flocks, remember. So they did also lay snares and catch fowls of the air, and they did also prepare a vessel in which they did carry with them the fish of the waters. So for keeping track... Uh, the people had flocks. They also uh, caught birds that they could eat. And they even had some sort of a vessel in which they could carry fish. So these are their food sources as they prepare a Nimrod for the next leg of their journey. If we're to use modern day language for what they did, Ogden and Skinner point out that as the Jaredites contemplated and prepared for their journey, they remarkably created an aquarium and small aviaries. That seems to be what they're doing. And then this goes even further in verse 3. Very interestingly, it says, And they did also carry with them Deseret, which by interpretation is a honeybee. And thus they did carry with them swarms of bees, and all manner of that which was upon the face of the land, seeds of every kind. So we've covered flocks, we've covered birds, we've covered fish, now we've covered insects, and then we find that they also carry seeds with them. Why they would carry bees with them um, kind of boggles the modern mind uh, because, of course, the noxious nature of traveling with bees. We can only imagine what that would have been like for them, uh, but this must be the degree to which they prized the honey that they got from the bees and also perhaps the way in which they, they, they helped to pollinate. In this sense, I think we can see a very interesting order in what is being presented to us, and the bees seem to be a bridge between the domain of the animals listed and the plants or the seeds that are listed. Hugh Nibley has written, By all odds, the most interesting and attractive passenger in Jared's company is Deseret, the honeybee. The word Deseret, we are told, by interpretation is a honeybee, the word plainly coming from the Jaredite language, since Ether or Moroni must interpret it. Now, it is a remarkable coincidence that the word Deseret, or something very close to it, enjoyed a position of ritual prominence among the founders of the classical Egyptian civilization, who associated it very closely with the symbol of the bee. That same association, of course, carries into the founding of the state of Utah. Brigham Young had an affinity for the concept of Deseret. Well, now as we come into verse 4, we would expect the Lord to meet the people there in the valley of Nimrod, as he said he would in the previous chapter. So now we find him speaking to the brother of Jared. Verse 4, And it came to pass that when they had come down into the valley of Nimrod, the Lord came down and talked with the brother of Jared. And he was in a cloud, and the brother of Jared saw him not. So the Lord promised to meet them there, and this is the way in which he does so. Verse 5, And it came to pass that the Lord commanded them that they should go forth into the wilderness, yea, into that quarter where there never had man been. 
And it came to pass that the Lord did go before them, and did talk with them as he stood in a cloud, and gave directions whither they should travel. So that certainly reminds us of the idea of a cloud by day and a pillar by night, when we think about how the children of Israel were led along in the Sinai Peninsula. We can also see that they were given directions whither they should travel, which is similar language to the language of the Liahona in Lehi's story. When we consider the cloud that the Lord was in, that word is used in very interesting ways in other parts of Scripture. We can think about the cloud of witnesses spoken of in the book of Hebrews. At other times, we read of a cloud of darkness. An example of this is when Lehi and Nephi were found preaching in the land of Nephi. We read of this in Helaman chapter 5. And they were imprisoned in the same prison that held the original Ammon, who uh, encountered Limhi in the land of Nephi. A really miraculous event takes place during this incident when they're imprisoned. Part of this is that they were overshadowed with a cloud of darkness. Now, this is from the perspective of the Lamanites who were present at this time. And all of this is unfolding before them as Lehi and Nephi stand as though they're in fire and they're not burned. And the earth shakes and they hear a voice from the heavens. But in the midst of all this, there is a cloud of darkness. So that's another scriptural example of clouds. Associated with this incident in Helaman chapter 5, Ogden and Skinner gave us some very interesting insight into the dwelling cloud of God, which is connected with the Hebrew word Shekinah, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, S-H-E-K-H-I-N-A-H. They write that this dwelling cloud is depicted as glory or fire or sometimes like lightning, light, exquisite whiteness, brightness, brilliance, and radiance. So a dwelling cloud for God. All of that then could be implied in what we're reading here. So it's interesting and of course symbolic that the brother of Jared is being told in verse 5 that he and his people will go forth into the wilderness, but in so doing they're going to go into a quarter where there never had man been. Thomas Arvaleta, in the same piece that we read from just a moment ago, said the idea of the people of God escaping into the wilderness is a common pattern. Adam and Eve are driven into a world of thorns and thistles. The Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Even the Savior preceded his mission by going out into the wilderness to commune with God. One scholar of antiquity has suggested that the desert is the world one passes through. It is nothing in itself. It is barren and inhospitable. It is not meant for people to remain in. One travels through the wilderness as one travels through time. Just like time, so does the desert lead to a new world to the promised land. So in these stories, I think Valletta is saying that the desert is the medium of exile. That's certainly true in Moses' story, and uh, it's very very interestingly true in the, the modern story of the Latter-day Saints as well. It's true in this instance, and we know without a doubt that Lehi lived in the desert as well. Uh, but this other writer that v- Valletta is quoting from, uh, named Weinreb, he doesn't provide his first name, but the, the piece is called Roots of the Bible, he is likening this desert medium to the, to the medium of time, which I think is really insightful. There's a wonderful statement by Elder Nilly Maxwell when he likens this exile narrative to our own lives and the way in which we are wanderers in a strange land. And, and he says that this strange land really is time. This is a quote by Elder Maxwell that I hold particularly dear. He says, Time is clearly not our natural dimension. Thus it is that we are never really at home in time. 
and think, of course, how this relates to the desert that we're reading about here. But then Elder Maxwell goes on to explain why we're not at home in time. He says, Alternatively, we find ourselves wishing to hasten the passage of time or to hold back the dawn. We can do neither, of course, but whereas the fish is at home in water, we are clearly not at home in time, because we belong to eternity. Now, coming back to this expression about uh, the Jaredites going into a place where there never had man been, uh, Hugh Nibley has written this, In our studies of ether, we overlooked one significant expression that deserves notice. When the human race had defiled the earth with sin, and of course that's what happened in the Tower of Babel incident, the righteous brother of Jared was ordered to move out and establish a righteous foundation in the earth. His people were not saints. They were just not quite as bad as the others. But the specific instructions to Jared were to go with his people into that quarter where there never had man been. Some years ago, H. Gressman, says Nibley, in examining the tradition of the great natural catastrophe and moral overthrow in the time of the Tower of Babel, and of course that's when our Jaredite migration takes place, came across the ancient concept found among the Hebrews that when the earth was defiled by men, it was necessary for those whom God would preserve from the general destruction that they be sent into some undefiled part of the earth, which could only be, as Gressman's sources have it, a land of the beyond, where no members of the human race had as yet inhabited. This is exactly the sense of God's instructions to the brother of Jared. Well, now as we come into verse 6, we go into a piece of narrative that describes a journey across the waters, and we kind of wonder if what's happening here is that it's a summary of what is to come, and then that summary is unpacked through the remainder of the narrative, so that there's just one journey. But uh, this notion is dispelled later in the chapter when the Lord speaks to Jared, and basically tells him to build barges for the second time. So verse 6 says, And it came to pass that they did travel in the wilderness and did build barges, in which they did cross many waters, being directed continually by the hand of the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. So this seems to be saying that they have completed that journey, but that journey is not enough. Uh, They're not going to stop there. They're going to keep going into the land of promise. This undefiled place, as Nibley has explained, where people have never lived, but also this place that is bounded by covenant uh, that Moroni is about to explain. Hugh Nibley has also written in his book, Since Camorra, God does not rejoice in the suffering of his children, and in his kindness has set aside places where those qualified to be happy could enjoy happiness even in this life. He leadeth away the righteous into precious lands, as Nephi said in 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 38, where the hand of providence pours blessings upon them in almost embarrassing abundance. And he's referencing Jacob chapter 2, verse 13 there. Those who come to the land of promise come by invitation. There shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. And Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 6 says that. Hence, says Nibley, they are expected to behave themselves. So now since the Lord has told the brother of Jared that this first journey wasn't enough, and by the way, there probably was a journey, there clearly was a journey that took them into the Valley of Nimrod, uh, that this journey is not enough either that has, as we'll soon learn, brought them to the land of Moriankamer because they are still to be led to a land of promise. So uh, this uh, takes us into verse 8, 
And then we'll, after that, go into Moroni's commentary on the land of promise. So verse 8 says, And he had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared, that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them. So that's already uh, a great encapsulation of the covenant promise that's connected with the land that we have read throughout Mormon's abridgments of the large plates of Nephi, and of course, this sub-thesis that even Lehi introduced to us in the small plates of the book of Nephi. This idea that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments, ye shall prosper in the land, and if you do not, you'll be cut off from the presence of the Lord. So that same thing is found here in the story. Well, with his editorial license, this abridger, this editor, Moroni, he is deciding here that he's going to pause uh, the story and he's going to comment on this land of promise. And so this is what we find in verses 9 through 12. And there will be lots of interesting associated commentary with this. So we can remember as we move into verse 9 that we have read numerous iterations of this land of promise story and concept uh, throughout the Book of Mormon. Now, Moroni is the final record keeper of the Book of Mormon, has the task of bringing this home to us for the very final time, this concept home. So, verse 9, And now, we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land. So again, Moroni is pausing here in his storytelling narrative, and in these four verses, he's going to talk specifically about this land of promise. That it is a land of promise, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. So sometimes when we use the word promise, we speak of someone who is promising or a prospect that is promising. So uh, lest we think that this is a land that is promising, and that is true, uh, there's something more going on here. This is a land that is bound by conditions. This is a conditional prosperity that can be enjoyed in this land. It's a land of covenant. It's a land of promise. It's a land of conditions. So that's what Moroni means by a land of promise. Then again saying, Whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God. So those are the conditions of the promise. Or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. So how far into the future would that be? How long can the inhabitants of this land live in iniquity before the fullness of wrath comes? Well, Moroni answers that here. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. So this is a new element that's added to this promised land narrative, uh, this subthesis that Lehi first gave us at the beginning of the small plates of Nephi that was carried through the small plates by those record keepers, and then that Mormon continually reminded us of as he went through his abridgment of the large plates of Nephi. Here's a new element that says that the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. So previously we have read that inasmuch as you will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the Lord's presence. Well, what's the timing of that? Moroni is saying here that that's when they are ripened in iniquity. He has just given us graphic descriptions of our own time, remember, in Mormon chapter 8, uh, telling us that we, during this time, are ripening in iniquity. So this should really pique our interest. Verse 10, For behold, This is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. For it is the everlasting decree of God. And it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. 
So he's basically restating what he did in the previous verse, kind of in the manner or pattern of Hebrew parallelism. That's a poetic way of emphasizing this concept. Now that he has done this, he will now turn to us as modern readers so that there's no question about the application of what he's talking about here. Remember, he's pausing. He's not just telling the Jaredite story. He's now addressing modern readers. This is particularly true in verses 11 and 12. So verse 11, And this cometh unto you, O ye Gentiles, that ye may know the decrees of God, that ye may repent and not continue in your iniquities until the fullness come, that ye may not bring down the fullness of the wrath of God upon you as the inhabitants of the land have hitherto done. And how many times have the inhabitants of the land hitherto done this? Well, according to the record that we've read so far, once the Nephites in Mormon chapter 6. But as Moroni is about to show us, it's twice. The Jaredite story will also end in destruction in this land. Then in verse 12, Moroni continues, unmistakably speaking to the modern-day reader, not wanting this destruction to be thrice, says, Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if, so again it's conditional, if they will but serve the God of the land who is Jesus Christ, who hath been manifested by the things which we have written. Having arrived at this point in the Book of Mormon, we certainly cannot disagree that Jesus Christ hath been manifested by the things that have been written so far. That has been the primary purpose of the Book of Mormon, of course, is for Jesus Christ to have been manifested through these words. Very symbolically and beautifully and poetically, he will then manifest himself to the brother of Jared, as Moroni continues into subsequent chapters of the Book of Ether. Well, for a few moments here, let's read some commentary that discusses this land of promise, the nature of this land, the boundaries of this land, and the conditions that surround it, this everlasting decree that we read of in verse 10. So first this from President Gordon B. Hinckley. He said, Great are the promises concerning this land of America. We are told unequivocally that it is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. This is the crux of the entire matter, says President Hinckley, obedience to the commandments of God. Ogden and Skinner have written, The Americas, the land of promise, choice above all other lands, has been specifically preserved by the Lord for those people he brings, for a righteous people. And if they abandon him after establishing themselves here, and become ripened in iniquity to the fullness of iniquity, He will remove them from the land. The Book of Mormon is a witness of that truth. Two civilizations, the Jaredite and Nephite, were swept off and destroyed when they abandoned their God. The Book of Mormon is given to the inhabitants of the Americas to lead them to repentance and to help them avoid the calamities that would otherwise come upon them. Serving America's God, Jesus Christ, precludes the possibility of bondage and captivity. So a very interesting way of expressing that from Ogden and Skinner. Now, they also provide us with something here that helps us appreciate the boundaries of this promised land. Uh, what, What exactly are we talking about? What land is in question here? More often than not, of course, and I think appropriately, we think of the founding of the United States of America and its role in this entire story. But it actually is more broad than that. So here's what Ogden and Skinner provide for us. They say, The scriptures and the modern prophets clearly identify all of the Americas as the land of promise and the inheritance of Zion for God's righteous people. 
Alma chapter 46, verse 17 says that Moroni named all the land which was south of the land desolation, yea, and in fine, all the land, both on the north and on the south, a chosen land and the land of liberty. Joseph Smith said, You know there has been great discussion in relation to Zion, where it is and where the gathering of the dispensation is, and which I am now going to tell you. The prophets have spoken and written upon it, but I will make a proclamation that will cover a broader ground. The whole of America is Zion itself from north to south, and is described by the prophets who declare that it is the Zion where the mountain of the Lord should be, and that it should be in the center of the land. When elders shall take up and examine the old prophecies of the Bible, they will see it. Now, it would seem that those statements by both Captain Moroni in Alma chapter 46 and that statement by the prophet Joseph Smith could still have to do with the North American continent, really. Uh, However, uh, it could also be interpreted in the way that Ogden and Skinner are framing it here uh, with reference to North and South America. That particularly becomes true when we read this from Spencer W. Kimball. And I don't remember if Ogden and Skinner say it here, but we really also can think about the land of the everlasting hills that Jacob talks about when he speaks of Joseph being a fruitful bough and going to another land uh, because of those everlasting hills. And we can think about the way that the mountains really extend all the way from the tip of South America up through the top of North America, a land of everlasting hills. So as Ogden and Skinner continue here, President Spencer W. Kimball, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, at a meeting held in Guatemala City in the 16th of November in 1952, offered a prayer in Spanish, very interestingly. Uh, President Nelson has that same propensity to use the, the gift of tongues and to speak in other languages whenever possible. So President Kimball offered this prayer in 1952, again in Spanish, and here are some excerpts from that in, in an English translation of his dedicatory prayer. He said, We stand this day on the land of Zion, the promised land, made sacred by the works, the movements, and the activities of the righteous saints and prophets of earlier times, and especially sanctified by the repeated visits of thy beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we often think of Orson Hyde's dedicatory prayer on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and uh, what a pivotal moment that was. But look at this. This is President Spencer W. Kimball offering a dedicatory prayer in the lands of Central America for the preaching of the gospel. And he's doing it in the Spanish language. Something very significant is happening here. And as he stands in this place in Guatemala City, offering this prayer, he's referring to it as Zion, the promised land made sacred by the works, the movements, and the activities of the righteous saints and prophets of earlier times. Now he continues by saying, These children of Lehi, this part of Zion, even to Central America, and the great truths of thy everlasting gospel, have been established on this land through thy Son, Jesus Christ, in person. And all this happened on our American Zion. Thy Spirit has touched these Central American countries. And we ask that the seed of Lehi in these Central American countries, and the Gentiles among them, may see and hear and understand, and have the courage and fortitude to accept and live the exalting program of thy divine gospel, that this great people may be converted and be healed. So really an incredible thing that's happening here uh, in this prayer by President Kimball. The circumstances are quite incredible. Uh, It's something to consider in and of itself, but it's used here in this context to show that there are prophets uh, who have declared that it's not just the North American continent 
that is this land of promise that's discussed in the Book of Mormon. Elder Bruce R. McConkie once said, the Book of Mormon contains a record of God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, plural. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin said, Joseph became the birthright son in the house of Israel and received an inheritance in the lands of the Americas. Again, plural, lands. Elder Marky Peterson once wrote, If the modern nations of the Americas will repent and serve the Lord, great blessings will be theirs. For the prophet has said, This is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ. President Ezra Taft Benson has written, To the peoples who should inhabit this blessed land of the Americas, plural, the Western Hemisphere, an ancient prophet uttered this significant promise and solemn warning. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. Then President Spencer W. Kimball once said, About 25 centuries ago, a hardy group left the comforts of a great city, crossed a desert, braved an ocean, and came to the shores of this their promised land. There were two large families, those of Lehi and Ishmael, who in not many centuries numbered hundreds of millions of people on these two American continents. They were given by the creator of this land a clear title to the Americas, a certificate of title, free and clear of all encumbrance. President J. Reuben Clark once said, The Constitution of the United States is the basic law for all of the Americas, or Zion, as it has been defined by the Lord. Clearly, if the people of this land, this whole land of America, all of it, must serve Jesus Christ, the God of the land, or be swept off, and this is the very gist of all and every blessing promised for, and every judgment uttered against this land, then God must so provide that men in all the Americas should serve him. Dennis Largy's Book of Mormon Reference Companion says the story of the Jaredite civilization gives perspective to the history and destiny of the Americas as a choice land above all other lands, a chosen land of the Lord, wherefore the Lord would have that all men should serve him who dwell upon the face thereof. And finally, the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, uh, edited, of course, by Daniel Ludlow, says several doctrines taught within the Book of Ether are greatly valued among Latter-day Saints, namely that prosperity in the promised land, the Americas, is conditioned on serving the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon peoples, including the family of Lehi and the Jaredites, were given a promised land in the hemisphere now called the Americas, on condition of keeping God's commandments. Now, before moving back into the narrative, let's look at two more pieces of commentary that really focus on the conditional nature of the prosperity that the Lord's people can enjoy in this promised land. First, this from Joseph B. Worthlin. He said, The Lord has reserved this land as the place for the restoration of his church. For this land to achieve its full potential, its citizens must remain rooted firmly in the principles that made it great. The enemies of God are attacking the core foundations of this land. The Lord's law for this land is declared in the Book of Mormon, where we read that this land is a land of promise, that whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God or they shall be swept off. The only power strong enough to withstand a fullness of iniquity is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a very interesting comparison there made by Elder Worthlin between this phrase of Moroni's, the fullness of iniquity, and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only possible countervailing force to that. Michael Middleton has written in his contribution to Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon volume uh, called Gatherings in the Last Days, has said, 
In many instances where wickedness prevails, the Lord covenants with the righteous and guides them to a land of promise where their inheritance includes the opportunity and responsibility to build Zion. Their land of promise is not taken away until they reject the promise of Zion and are fully ripened in their iniquity. Possession of a land of promise is always predicated upon hearkening to the voice of the Lord and serving the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. Before they arrived in the promised land, the Lord revealed to both the Nephites and the Jaredites the blessings and correlative responsibilities associated with being gathered to the promised land. Expressing his thoughts upon the land that he would soon give to the Jaredites, the Lord's warning is forcefully redundant. Three times in four verses, he repeats a vital couplet concerning the American continents. First, this is a choice land of promise. Second, the inhabitants will be swept off if they become fully ripened in iniquity. So I think that's a great ending summary by Middleton of what it is that we've just taken in, in this interjection by Moroni. This critical statement and subthesis that has been a thread throughout the entire Book of Mormon, which has sometimes been referred to as a land covenant or a collective land covenant, has been developed upon so carefully and beautifully, and interestingly, redundantly, by Moroni in this section. So now as we come to verse 13, He's going to return back to the narrative, so his interjection is done. So he says, And now I proceed with my record. For behold, it came to pass that the Lord did bring Jared and his brethren forth, even to that great sea which divideth the lands. And as they came to the sea, they pitched their tents, and they called the name of the place Moriancomer, and they dwelt in tents, and dwelt in tents upon the seashore for the space of four years. So they traveled to Moriancomer after a sea journey in barges. And once they arrived, they dwelt there for four years. So to keep track of what's happened so far, the Tower of Babel incident occurs. Jared and his brother approach the Lord and says, Please scatter us in an orderly manner and don't confound our language. The Lord obliges and says, I'll meet you in the Valley of Nimrod. So they travel to Nimrod, they gather there, and they get ready for another journey. That other journey involves a sea voyage. They take that sea voyage from Nimrod to this new place, that's at the seashore, and it's called Moriankamer, and they live there in tents for four years. All of this, then, is a prelude to what it is that's about to happen that is of a very spiritual nature for the next several chapters until Jared and his people leave Moriankamer in Ether chapter 6. We can guess, of course, that Moriankamer is named after the brother of Jared. And uh, here's some commentary that supports that idea, and it will review the story that we read in the previous chapter about the naming of brother of the brother of Jared, but it's worth reviewing here. And we'll do that by reading from Sidney B. Sperry in his Book of Mormon Compendium. He writes, The Lord finally brought Jared and his brethren safely to the shores of the great sea, which divideth the lands. Here they pitched their tents and named the place Moriankamer. Inasmuch as it was quite customary in ancient times, even now at times for that matter, to name a place after the name of the most prominent individual who helped settle it, we may rightly guess that the name of the brother of Jared was Moriankamer. In connection with the name Moriankamer, Elder George Reynolds relates the following interesting incident. While residing in Kirtland, Elder Reynolds Cahoon had a son born to him. One day when President Joseph Smith was passing by his door, he called the prophet in and asked him to bless and name the baby. Joseph did so and gave the boy the name of Mahanrai Moriankamer. When he had finished the blessing, he laid the child on the bed and turning to Elder Cahoon, he said, The name I have given your son is the name of the brother of Jared. 
The Lord has just shown or revealed it to me. Elder William F. Cahoon, who was standing near, heard the prophet make this statement to his father, and this was the first time of the name of the brother of Jared was known to the church in this dispensation. So that, of course, is a popular and an intriguing story in our lore. But Sperry is pointing out here that Moriankamer is named in the text, and it would make sense that it was named after the founder of this place, which would have been the brother of Jared. So what we will do now as we come into verse 14 is to depart from the storytelling narrative. It's much like reading First Nephi when um, we get the actual account of their journey only in certain chapters and then other chapters contain discourse or spiritual exchanges of some sort or dialogues. That's what's happening here. So we have now established, uh, just to review, that the Jaredites have left the area of the Tower of Babel. They went to the Valley of Nimrod. Then they came to Moriankamer. This will be the place setting then for everything that is about to take place. And then, then, of course, more specifically in the next chapter, the place setting will be the mount within Moriankamer. So now with this place setting established, let's begin to read about the brother of Jared's interactions with the Lord. Verse 14, And it came to pass at the end of four years that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in a cloud and talked with him. And for the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared, and chastened him, because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we know exactly how to track three hours with modern-day timepieces. I don't know exactly how the record keeper here knew that it was three hours, but for some reason that's an important thing to note in the text, an important detail that's, uh, I think, really curious. As I mentioned in the flyover summary, I, I don't think it's right to think of the brother of Jared as a spiritual miscreant. He He had great spiritual stature, so Perhaps there's something else going on here. Perhaps it's the way in which he prayed, or perhaps it's the fact that he hadn't gone to the mount as often as he should. What can't be disputed here is that the Lord did chasten him because he remembered not to call upon his name. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says that in modern revelation, the Lord taught, whom I love, I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement, I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, which I have, and I have loved you. That's Doctrine and Covenants section 95, verse 1. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles commented on the strength of character it takes to endure chastening. He said, It is difficult to imagine what a three-hour rebuke from the Lord might be like. But the brother of Jared endured it. With immediate repentance and prayer, this prophet again sought guidance for the journey they had been assigned and those who were to pursue it. God accepted his repentance and lovingly gave further direction for their crucial mission. I personally have to wonder if if chastisement is the record keeper's chosen word here for something broader that was happening for the brother of Jared that is uh, consistent with the way in which the Lord took other prophets into the visionary realm and spoke to them and made them aware of their nothingness. This certainly happened to Moses. This is just my own conjecture and my own notion, but I do wonder if that's the case. Coming back to the idea of the Lord chastening whom he loves, uh, Elder Maxwell has said, The Lord is truly there to chastise those whom he loves, including the spiritually preeminent. The brother of Jared for too long had failed to pray. Even the good can become careless without the Lord's being there to chasten. Later, the chastened brother of Jared saw Christ. So here's how the brother of Jared responds to this chastening. Not with any um, defensiveness that we can see, Uh, not with any rebellion that we can see, but he simply repented. 
showing us, of course, that when we're chastened, either by circumstance or by someone's words, that we can choose to rewrite the rules or we can choose to repent. We always have those two paths that lie before us, and clearly the brother of Jared took the latter path. Or as uh, President Monson said towards the end of his ministry, that it is better to choose the harder right. May we ever choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, he said. So, verse 15, And the brother of Jared repented of the evil which he had done, and did call upon the name of the Lord for his brethren who were with him. And the Lord said unto him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, but thou shalt not sin any more. For ye shall remember that my spirit will not always strive with man. Wherefore, if ye will sin until ye are fully ripe, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And these are my thoughts upon the land which I shall give you for your inheritance, for it shall be a land choice above all other lands. So this can certainly be taken individually, uh, this idea that my spirit will not always strive with man. And that, of course, is true in an individual sense. And as President Nelson has said, uh, that a testimony is a perishable commodity. But the Lord is clearly speaking in the collective sense, coming back to this idea of a promised land and it being choice above all other lands, and that if collectively these people sin uh, until they're fully ripe, they'll be cut off. So it could also be that the brother of Jared is being chastised for not leading the people collectively to call upon God in the way that they should have during this four-year period that they lived in tents in the land of Moriankomer. In any event, once again, we can see the brother of Jared's meekness in his response to the Lord's chastising voice. Ogden and Skinner have said, imagine being chastised by the Lord for three hours. Of course, that echoes what uh, Elder Holland had said earlier. The brother of Jared had failed to call upon the Lord to prepare for a manifestation. Again, I'm suggesting perhaps there's a collective component to this as well. Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 1 Notes that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me, and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice, and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face and know that I am. That was about to happen to the brother of Jared, and he had seriously neglected his preparation for it. Neglecting that spiritual preparation according to the Lord was a sin. As President Spencer W. Kimball once urged the saints, We have paused on some plateaus long enough. Let us resume our journey forward. Humility and meekness are surely hallmarks of the brother of Jared. To accept chastening requires both, and chastening itself is required by the Lord. For all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified, says Doctrine and Covenants section 101 verse 5. The Lord's chastening is done out of profound love for us, to help us be better, to raise us to celestial heights, to make us worthy heirs of our heavenly parents. As the Apostle Paul wrote, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every child whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as children. For what child is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Here's an expansion of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's statement when he was earlier quoted by the Book of Mormon Institute manual, where he says, In the dispersion from the Tower of Babel, the people of Jared arrived at that great sea which divideth the lands, where they pitched their tents, awaiting further revelation about crossing the mighty ocean. For four years they awaited divine direction, but apparently they waited too casually, without supplication and exertion. Then came this remarkable encounter. So notice here that Elder Holland is also putting forward this notion that it was the people generally who had not called upon God, and the brother of Jared represents them as their prophet as he goes before the Lord, and so the Lord is is chastening a people here. 
But be that as it may, Elder Holland continues by saying, It is difficult to imagine what a three-hour rebuke from the Lord might be like. But the brother of Jared endured it. With immediate repentance and prayer, this prophet again sought guidance for the journey they had been assigned and those who were to pursue it. God accepted his repentance and lovingly gave further direction for their crucial mission. So perhaps if we were to fill in some details here, we can think about how pleased Lehi and his family were to finally be at the seashore after they their eight years of wandering. These people undoubtedly would have been pleased to be in a state of relative comfort after their arduous sea journey that brought them to Moriankamer, just like Lehi's arduous journey that brought him to the seashore. And so when they were then faced with the task of preparing for yet another journey, because the Lord does intimate this, and the text intimates it earlier, saying that they still have to make their way to the promised land, we can imagine that the people may have resisted this, and they also may have become comfortable enough in this new place where they dwelt in tents that they weren't enthused about moving on. All of this perhaps could have played in to their tendency to not call upon the Lord appropriately during this time. So now that the Lord has spoken to the brother of Jared in this way, he is now going to uh, introduce the brother of Jared, essentially, to his new leg of the journey. He's going to direct him to build barges like the previous ones that they built in verse 6, and they will do so according to the instructions of the Lord. So verse 16 says, And the Lord said, Go to work and build. So there, too, is the antidote for the problem that the people have been suffering, presumably. These people... Who, led by the brother of Jared, who were not appropriately calling upon the Lord. It's to go to work and build. So that's instructive. He says, after the manner of barges which you have hitherto built. That tells us unequivocally then that there were barges in a previous instance and there was a previous sea voyage. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did go to work and also his brethren and built barges after the manner which they had built, according to the instructions of the Lord. And they were small and they were light upon the water even like unto the lightness of a fowl upon the water. So if they don't have the barges that they previously had, then they must have journeyed by land after arriving from their previous sea voyage. So it's necessary for them to do this again, to build barges again. And we're going to talk in a a few moments about the problems that these previous barges must have had. We're learning here, though, about their characteristics, that they were light upon the water, even the lightness of a fowl. Verse 17, and they were built after a manner that they were exceedingly tight, even that they would hold water like unto a dish, and the bottom thereof was tight like unto a dish, and the sides thereof were tight like unto a dish, and the ends thereof were peaked, and the top thereof was tight like unto a dish, and the length thereof was the length of a tree, and the door thereof when it was shut was tight like unto a dish. Very interesting and beautiful ancient language coming to the fore here describing something that would still, by modern standards, be very beautifully built. Noah, of course, was instructed as to how to build his ark in very curious ways, and he was to do it after the manner that the Lord taught him. And Nephi was instructed to build something not after the manner of men, but in the way that the Lord taught him to do. So the same thing is happening here, and there's, there's of course, a pattern there as well in the way that uh, we should build our lives uh, and our environments Uh, that we travel in from day to day in a similar manner, a way that is of the Lord and not of the world. Elder Holland has described these barges as seaworthy crafts, small, light, dish-shaped vessels identical in design above and beneath, so they were capable of staying afloat even if overturned by the waves. These exceedingly tight crafts were obviously of unprecedented design and capability, 
made under the direction of him who rules the seas and the winds. Elder Holland said that in his book, Christ in the New Covenant. So now something really curious happens, I think, in verses 18 and 19, because it's clear contextually here that barges of this nature had already been built and traveled in by the Jaredites. And so while we're marveling over their craftsmanship, as we are here, and with the help of Elder Holland, we can also see that the brother of Jared knows experientially that these barges pose some problems. And he will discuss three specific problems in verses 18 and 19. Those are the problems of light, of steering, and of breathing. So verse 18 says, And it came to pass that the brother of Jared cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, I have performed the work which thou hast commanded me, and I have made the barges according as thou hast directed me. So clearly some time has elapsed here between the time in which he received the instructions to build the barges and this present time. Then he carefully, and probably with some trepidation, brings these concerns to the Lord, saying in verse 19, And behold, O Lord, in them there is no light. Whither shall we steer? And also we shall perish, for in them we cannot breathe. So light, steering, and breathing. Save it is the air which is in them, therefore we shall perish. So Jared is bringing these problems before the Lord. It's certainly a good habit in human relations and in governance to make sure that we provide solutions along with the problems that we point out. It, it is one thing to be able to articulate problems, to identify them, and, and that in and of itself is something. But to be able also to propose a solution is something else. And the Lord will guide the brother of Jared through that latter process with the complaint or concern regarding light. But with breathing and with steering, he will explicitly explain how he will address that. The Lord will provide the solution of the problem that the brother of Jared has articulated. So he says in verse 20, And the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt make a hole in the top, and also in the bottom. And when thou shalt suffer for error, thou shalt unstop the hole, and receive error. And if it so be that the water come in upon thee, behold, ye shall stop the hole, that ye may not perish in the flood. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did so according as the Lord had commanded. So this kind of uh, fuels our imagination as we think about the way that these vessels were apparently similar on the bottom and on the top, and uh, that they, for want of air, could conceivably unstop the hole and discover that water is rushing in, so then they would very quickly stop the hole. So this is the method for breathing that the Lord has appointed for these barges. Then he'll address steering here in just a moment, very directly in verse 24, but coming into verse 22, he'll begin to speak of this concept of light. And again, there's a principle being taught here, and we'll have some uh, commentary that reinforces this principle, that it's, again, one thing to articulate a problem. And it's a good thing as we articulate problems that we see before the Lord. But if we can also discover and propose solutions, then that is also a a part of the process that the Lord desires. And that's, of course, what we'll learn here as we move through this sequence. So verse 22 says, And he cried again unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, Behold, I have done even as thou hast commanded me, and I have prepared the vessels for my people, and behold, there is no light in them. So notice the order here. The Lord tells the brother of Jared to do something. He does the thing. Then he comes back to the Lord and says, I completed that thing. So that's what he's saying here. Now he's bringing this new concern to him, saying, And behold, there is no light in them. Behold, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that we shall cross this great water in darkness? 
That also is an interesting question because the brother of Jared presumably is willing to cross this great water in darkness. He is asking the Lord if that is his will for them. At least I think that question can be read in that way. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's but if not statement. Verse 23, And the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do, that ye may have light in your vessels? You have articulated the problem. Can you articulate a solution? For behold, ye cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces. Neither shall ye take fire with you, for ye shall not go by the light of fire. Verse 24, For behold, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea. So the Lord is thinking through this problem with the brother of Jared. For the mountain wave shall dash upon you. Now it's here, as he's thinking through this with Jared, that he's also going to tell him how he will steer him by saying, Nevertheless, I will bring you up again out of the depths of the sea, for the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. Then the final verse, And behold, I prepare you against these things. In other words, the the design of this barge and the way in which I will steer you, that will prepare you against these things. For ye cannot cross this great deep, save I prepare you against the ways of the sea. Uh, And the winds have gone forth, and the floods which shall come. Therefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? So in other words, in, in light of these design elements that do need to be in place that preclude light, how is it that you would like me to provide light? The Lord says, So he wants the brother of Jared then to propose a solution. And of course, this is the segue that will bring us into Ether chapter 3. President Harold B. Lee has spoken of this incident. When first, by the way, the Lord says, What will ye that I should do? In verse 23. And then as uh, Terrell Givens has recently suggested in verse 25, the Lord nudges the brother of Jared a little bit further by not just saying, What is it that ye shall have me do? But, what is it that ye should that I should prepare for you? As though he's maybe giving the brother of Jared a little bit of a hint that uh, something could be prepared and perhaps brought before him. Of course, that's what we'll see in the next chapter. But again, of this event, President Harold B. Lee taught, this is the principle in action. If you want the blessing, don't just kneel down and pray about it. Prepare yourself in every conceivable way you can in order to make yourselves worthy to receive the blessing you seek. The brother of Jared, who is preparing the barges, as you remember, and then came to him the realization that the barges, tightly fitted, would have no light, that they would have to sail across the deep with no light in those barges, and so he called the Lord's attention to it. And in answer to this question, the Lord said, Behold, I prepare you against these things, for ye cannot cross this great deep, save I prepare you against the waves of the sea. Therefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? Now, wasn't that interesting that the Lord was to ask a mere man what the man would suggest to the Lord to do in order to light those vessels? Now, doesn't that strike you as interesting? Well, now he had to do some thinking. Remember this statement that Moroni sums up after he reads this thrilling story. Here is what I think he was trying to teach the brother of Jared. And you who want to develop the faith sufficient to be saved, you should remember this lesson. Now, I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto you, uh, this is in Ether chapter 12, verse 6, by the way, the world, I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen, wherefore dispute not because ye see not. Now, get this last statement, says President Lee. 
for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. You see what he was doing with the brother of Jared? He was saying to him, Now you do some thinking, you do some planning, you exercise all of your powers, and when you have humbled yourself and have made yourself sufficiently worthy, then I'll perform the miracle necessary that you can have light in those vessels. Ogden and Skinner have written, The brother of Jared was perplexed about what to do. He recognized three major problems. The group needed lighting, steering, and breathing mechanisms for their vessels. Each craft would be in some sense a submarine, as a whale in the midst of the sea, at times swallowed up in the depths or submerged, at other times brought back up again out of the depths of the sea. How were the three challenges or problems resolved? In three ways, which suggest to us how the Lord trains us and how we in turn can teach and train others, such as children, family members, and those associated with our callings. First, the Lord commanded a course of action to be taken. You do this. Second, the Lord, by implication, asks for the brother of Jared's best thinking, and then he tells him to request a course of action from the Lord. What will ye that I should do? The Lord asked his prophet. Though all-powerful, God doesn't just step in and do everything for us. It is our responsibility to suggest a remedy or solution. There is no waste of divine energy. What man can do, man must do. Then God steps in to help. Finally, the Lord says in effect, Trust me, I will do such and such. As the Lord knew, boats were not the only kind of vessels to be concerned about in this situation. People are vessels as well, as we know. Mary, the mother of Jesus, for example, was a precious and chosen vessel. And so are Heavenly Father's other children. Leaders and teachers are charged with helping to fill those vessels with light. Well, of course, this is an amazing incident in the Book of Mormon as we encounter this interaction between the brother of Jared and the Lord. And the way in which the brother of Jared is asked to bring his own solution to the fore. This, of course, is in keeping with the statement in Doctrine and Covenants that says that men should not be compelled in all things. It's also consistent with the idea that, uh, as, as it was told to Oliver Cowdery, that we should study it out in our minds first. Although we've already discussed this principle at length, I think I'd still like to read this final piece of commentary. It's so beautiful from the Book of Mormon Institute manual that expands upon this particular teaching. It says, It has often been said that we should pray as if everything depends on the Lord and work as if everything depends on us. Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said that he has often heard President Gordon B. Hinckley say, I don't know how to get anything done except getting on my knees and pleading for help and then getting on my feet and going to work. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained that the Lord requires us to use our agency as we seek his help. Regarding the brother of Jared's experience, Elder McConkie said, The Lord talked to him about it a little. And then he said this, What will ye that I should do that ye may have light in your vessels? In effect, what are you asking me for? This is something that you should have solved. And he talked a little more, and he repeated in essence the question, What will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? In other words, Moriankamer, this is your problem. Why are you troubling me? I've given you your agency. You are endowed with capacity and ability. Get out and solve the problem, says Elder McConkie. I'll end with this piece of commentary from Thomas Arvaletta, this same piece out of uh, Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon commentary called Jared and His Brother. And he says, There is a pattern in these verses worth noting. God preserves his children from day to day by lending them breath, that they may live and move according and do according to their will. And behold, all that he requires of them, 
is that they keep his commandments. That was an expression, of course, by King Benjamin that we can find in the book of Mosiah. In other words, God freely grants his children breath and life so that they might exercise their own wills righteously and thereby grow more like him. This principle is also taught in the revelation concerning Oliver Cowdery, given in April 1829. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. It's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 7 through 8. President Harold B. Lee commented on these verses in Ether similarly. It was as though the Lord were saying to the brother of Jared, Look, I gave you a mind to think with, and I gave you agency to use it. Now you do all you can do to help yourself with this problem, and then, after you've done all you can, I'll step in to help you. So we can see that in this thing, Jared is also accessing the Savior's grace in this way, this enabling power that comes after we've done all that we can do, but I would add, during the time that we've done all that we can do, and it's his same grace that animates us and enables us and makes it possible for us to seek his help in the first place. Well, these are great teachings and a great deal more is to come as we move into Ether chapter 3 and read of this interaction between the brother of Jared and the Lord. So we have that great episode to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of Ether chapter 2. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.